thankful for the way these stories hold on to the lifetime we won't get back. I know these rivers carry Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and it feels good to be back after uh, after we took last week off. Of course, you might not even be you might not even be listening to this episode uh, in in the time it's released. But uh, regardless, it, it feels great to be back, and uh, we're welcoming someone who's already been on the podcast, I believe, twice now. Uh, but that's because he's from uh, the Kankakee County Museum, and I'm excited to welcome him back today. Except this uh, actually, this episode is outside of the museum. We're going to actually focus on him today. And uh, not a particular, well, I'm sure we'll dive into many historical subjects about Kankakee County, but uh, I am pleased to welcome uh, local historian Jack Clacy onto the podcast. How are you, Jack? Oh, thank you, Jake. I'm happy to be here. Of course. It's great to have you back. And um, I believe it it was twice that you've been on yes, now, it was. right? That's right. It was the, the Frank Lloyd Wright House. And, and the... Radicky Brewery. Radicky, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think it's, I always think it's three because we had to re-record that Bradley House right. episode because of the uh, the little glitch. Yeah, the fiasco I had. But um, you know, just the 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 three times or three or four times that you and I have been able to talk in person, face to face, I've just been. Um, wanting to just know more about you and your life because it sounds like you've lived an interesting life. I think one of the stories that looped me in was you were talking about your your grandfather that used to work at, was it the, the Joliet County? Or not the Joliet, the Will, well, no, it was the Joliet Prison. That's right. My grandfather was the, his the title was Chief Dietitian of the State of Illinois. And this was back in the 1950s, early 50s, uh, actually even the late 40s. Uh, he was in charge of the kitchens in all of the state prisons in Illinois. Oh, all of them? I yes. thought it was just Joliet. No, one of the perks of the job was that lodging was free. They were actually in the administration building of the old prison at Joliet on Collins Street. Uh, most younger people would recognize that as the Blues Brothers prison. Yep, yep. That's <laughs> uh, how I've always recognized it, too. The second floor of the administration building, which was part of the front wall of the prison, and then, of course, it was fenced off of, and so forth, uh, were two apartments. One was my grandfather and grandmother's apartment, and the other was the person who was at that time the assistant warden of the prison, uh, Joseph Reagan, who later went on for many years to be the uh, supervisor of the uh, the chief warden of the prisons. 
But uh, when we were little kids, uh, we occasionally would be would be at church on Sunday morning, and after church, the we'd gather outside talking to people as we usually do. And uh, one of us would probably mention that, oh, we're going off to visit Grandpa in prison today, <laughs> which, you know, mortally embarrassed my parents, totally got used to it, and everybody kind of knew that anyway. But <laughs> but for the one, even just the one person that didn't know, you would get that look. That's you would right. get that reaction like, what? <laughs> Your grandfather's in prison? What? Why? What's he doing there? <laughs> he oh. Yeah, he was an interesting man. He was a fairly short, tough little banty Irishman uh, named Bill Sullivan. Okay. And uh, he had a nickname in the, the prison, among the prison population. Uh, he was called Meatball Sully. And the way that came about is that uh, whenever anybody would uh, ask, uh, what's for dinner tonight, Sully? Meatballs. <laughs> it was always meatballs, huh? He was also the first author in the family. Oh, okay. So it started <laughs> he, with him. It didn't start with you. He wrote a cookbook. Oh, well, there you <laughs> go. It was a cookbook for uh, state state prison kitchens. And the recipes, you know, for example, for mashed potatoes started with peel a bushel of potatoes <laughs> and so forth. So yeah. it was not very useful, although it was often the gag gift given to new brides in the family for years. <laughs> That would be hilarious, and I'm sure. What 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 was the title of it? What did it have the word like prison in it or correctional? <laughs> I don't remember, I don't remember the title. Only the stories about you know the, the uh, how it was used. Uh huh. It was an interesting man. He had been a florist, owned a chain of florist shops at one time. He was a teamster in the stock carriage in Chicago when teamsters drove horses. And after he retired from the prison system, he and my grandmother. Uh, were caretakers, operators of a funeral home at the north side of Chicago. So, very interesting man. Wow, a lot of, yeah, a lot of interesting jobs and careers right there. Sort of runs in the family. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, just like you, um, I, you know, with, you're not only uh, attached to the Kankakee County Museum and the Historical Society, but you also write a, a weekly column in the Daily Journal that people can read every single weekend. I've been enjoying those for the last few years, uh, I think is probably when I got turned on to them. And there's always something fascinating that you uh, present to us every single week. So I think there people could know you for either of those things or even your books that you write. You've written several books yes, at I this have. point. Um, and we'll get into uh, your latest book here in a little bit. But what... Where were you born? Were you born in Kankakee County? No, I was born in Chicago. Okay. Uh, grew up on the south side, out in, uh, actually the southeast side, out around the steel mills and so forth. And, uh, oh, let's see, went to Marquette University, major in journalism when I started out. At that time, it was possible because of the tuition rates were much lower to work your way through school. Uh Unfortunately, I only lasted about two years. I ran out of money. I was working full-time nights for Wonder Bread in the bakery and taking classes in the daytime. But uh, by the end of my sophomore year, for some reason, I just couldn't accumulate enough money for the next year. So I said, okay, I'll take some time out. Well, unfortunately, it lasted about 40 years. <laughs> did you ever go back and finish? Uh, I did. I went back to Governor State University and finished my degree in 
I can't remember in the eighties sometime. I forgot. Okay, but when did uh, you originally go? Would that been in the sixties? Maybe. Would, yeah, actually, uh, fifty-seven is when I started. That's right. It was fifty-seven, and I okay. finished, and I went to finish my degree at uh, Governor State in eighty-seven. So okay. Um, the uh, no, I'm sorry, ninety-seven. What triggered me there is a a gift I got from. Uh, some of my fellow editors and where I was working at the time that uh, I graduated and it was a, a big brass paperweight star and on it was engraved college the best 40 years of your life <laughs> <laughs> well really I mean considering all of your experiences mm -hmm. You have probably a multitude of degrees, or you could even be labeled as a, a doctor at this point, you know, just because uh, education obviously goes beyond the classroom, you know. And so you pretty much took it upon yourself to, to go to that classroom outside of a brick-and-mortar college, you know. Um, a little bit of everything. Yeah, a little bit of everything. <laughs> Actually, the experience situation is part of my degree. Uh, Governor State at the time that I started there, and I think they still have a, a version of this, had a specialized program for people coming back to complete a degree uh, where with considerable research and presentation, you could apply for credit for different types of, cl of classes that you had equivalent experience for. So what you would do is identify a class, let's say uh, business writing 101 or something of this sort, uh, and by gathering examples and uh, information and so forth on how you would have met the requirements of that class, you could be awarded the credit for that class. As it happened, I think I was, I had 20 hours worth of credit wow. <laughs> from my applications. The notebook that I uh, compiled with all of the background and so forth was a two-inch thick notebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you were able to cash in, so I was. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason I went back, my wife and a good friend, Dick Fry, who was an administrator out of Kankakee Community College, uh, urged me to go back to school and finish my degree. And I said, well, I have never really had any problem with, you know, somebody saying, oh, you can't have this job because you don't have a degree. Yeah. But they said, just for your own satisfaction, try it. So mm -hmm. I went back, I took one class, and I was hooked. I loved it. So I would go every, you know, a couple evenings a week, I would go over. To, I was working up in Tinley Park at the time, so Governor State was very handy. Yeah. And took a, a nice variety of classes. You got kind of a chance to build your own major or whatever. Uh, and actually, what I, dis I graduated with a... Bachelor of Arts without major, which is what was normally with that case, but you had a concentration. I concentrated in photography. Oh, okay. Rather than a writing field, which was kind oh, of wow. strange, but I got kind of hooked on photography. And I actually authored, and it's still in use, a textbook on photography that's used quite a few different high schools and community colleges in the country. And every high school in the state of Texas that has a photography class uses that textbook. And uh, just about to start its fourth edition, which uh, I retired from. I did the first three editions. It came out in 2002, and uh, last one, I believe, was 2018. So I told the publisher this last time. I said, I, I don't really have enough energy <laughs> left to do, a, <laughs> to do an intensive re, uh, reboot. So let's you know find a co-author for me to take care of it. Okay. So What's it called? Uh, it's called Photography 
portfolio to profession. And it's a good-sized book. Uh, the commercial photography portion of it uh, uh, was was helped greatly by uh, Bill Jurovic, BJ. Oh, who he's a with great his studio here. Image uh, group, right? Image group, correct. Yeah. yeah. And uh, BJ's an old friend. We've known each other for many, many years. And when I, they wanted to add, when we did the last revision of it for the Texas adoption, uh, they wanted to add more on commercial photography and so forth as opposed to just, you know, photography as general principles. So I sat down with BJ and he's, oh, yeah, help you out. Well, I mean, he provided photographs and a lot of information and so forth. So, and of course, he's got a lot of experiences as, as an educator as well because he's taught at Olivet for I was going to say, is he, is he still there? I don't is know he if he is currently, but he, okay. he was there for many years teaching. I think he is, though, because frequently he'll bring his students over to the column garden at the museum okay. to do uh, outdoor photography. And so I see him out there once in a while and catch up with what's going on. Yeah. I haven't seen BJ in so long. I He's he's taken pictures of me one time. I, I was uh, attempting... Uh, to get into acting, oh, okay. so I was Steve. taking I was taking acting classes in the city, <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I need some good pictures you of need myself." Your eight by tens, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I hit up BJ, and um, he did a great job. But I also knew him from uh, Weber Printing. Oh, yes. Working there, he would get yeah. like uh, envelopes printed mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Your so grandfather's I, place. Yeah, <laughs> so I would. Um, I also knew. <laughs> yeah, right. You know Franklin as well. Um, but you know, so so once in a while, I would deliver his envelopes to you know Image Group Photography. Right. And but I remember uh, the one time he did take pictures of me, he was telling me about uh, he was teaching at Olivet. And uh, does does he use your book for his classes? No, I don't think he uses a textbook. Some photography instructors don't use a textbook. They use a variety of smaller, you know, types of material sure. to kind of tutor to their class. Yeah. And I assume your uh, photography book, is it just kind of like the basics or what is it? Or does it focus on, you said something about commercial yeah, no, it actually takes in the entire spectrum of photography, all of the basics of, you know, the mechanics of photography and composition, lighting, and so forth, studio work, uh, commercial printing, or, or, excuse me, commercial photography, uh, outdoor photography. We even still have, and I think this next edition is going to drop it because almost nobody's doing it anymore. We still had darkroom. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and film photography. Yeah. But of course, now everything is digital, and what a lot of what's being added is relating to using the, the, their phone. Yeah, and there are still some I know. There was, there was a uh, one of my high school classmates. She went through a, a phase, and I don't know if it was when she was in school or if it was just something that she wanted to learn or that she was interested in. But there was a time where. She was doing a lot of dark room work, developing her own film and, and things like that. My grandfather, back to Franklin, he used to do that. He used to, because obviously he had a dark room for oh, yes. printing. That's right. Uh, you know, developing he his film negatives for various things. Yeah. yeah so he would uh, he would do that with his, his photographs as well, because oh, he sure. liked photography. There are still a few places that are teaching uh, darkroom work and so forth. Uh, we were at a, a wedding a couple of weeks ago, and my uh, nephew, who actually lives out in New Jersey and works in, in New York, uh, his 
15-year-old son was there, and we got talking, and he said he was taking a photography class and found out that, yes, they were shooting film and actually doing darkroom work. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's something that should uh, always be taught, you know, whether it's a, a just a very small chapter or what, you know, lesson. I think it's just cool to to learn the the history of the the art of photography, you know. That kind of fits into my whole approach to things. I'm a technical person, although I don't have a formal technical background, but I'm uh I always like to know how something is done, and I also like to write about how things are done. Uh, a man, you're a man of all media, is what you are. <laughs> I would say that's a good way to a, a jack of instead of a jack of all trades, you're a jack of all media. Well, thank you. Because nice. <laughs> I remember the first time we sat down, we recorded that uh, Bradley House episode. Mm-hmm. You started talking about how you used to work at a recording. Like a recording yes. studio in oh, downtown yes. Kankakee years yes. ago? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, we came to Kankakee in 63. I was working for the Journal for oh, about, uh, I think, about four years. And uh, I'd always been kind of interested in audio work and so forth. In fact, technically, when I was my major when I was at Marquette was uh, broadcast journalism. So I was always kind of interested in studio things. And I saw a sign on a storefront in West uh, West Court Street saying something or other, you know, about a recording studio. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I popped in and got talking to the place, a fellow who ran a fellow named Spencer Barnard, who was an educator. And it turned out it was a company called Imperial International Learning, which was, that was the time when the audio cassette had just been introduced. And they jumped on that idea and thought, this would be a great medium for education. So they began producing lessons and uh, educational materials on audio cassette. And they were just getting started at that time. And we got talking and I was doing a little freelance work for them, a little bit of recording, a little bit of, you know, this and that. And uh, went to work for them. I quit the journal and went to work for them. And eventually uh, we ended up from a number of years doing quite a few different things. Uh, History, we had one, hist- one historical thing that was really cool. It was called The Living History Book. And to be honest, it was a ripoff of, of Walter Cronkite's You Are There. <laughs> oh, okay. Which was the same sort. They dramatized events in history, in this case taken uh, from the viewpoint of a radio broadcast, uh, radio coverage of an event or whatever, uh, so we got different writers to do different things. We had you know, Columbus's discovery of America, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, I wrote the I wrote the uh, Kennedy assassination script for that. Oh wow! Because <laughs> that was why. Well, for one thing, because believe it or not, I was the first person in Kankakee to know about the assassination. Because you were working for the Journal at the I time. I was working for the Journal, and on that day. Uh, I was the youngest reporter, newest reporter in the newsroom. So at lunchtime, everybody would clear out and head out for lunch, but sure. somebody had had to babysit. You know, the phone, be on yeah. duty. Yeah. And so I was the one left on duty. And uh, everybody else was up at Jensen's Restaurant, which was half a block up from the Journal on Dearborn. Okay. Uh, and uh, we, of course, got our national and international news by teletype from United Press International and Associated Press and so forth. And they had a number, a bell code. 
the various numbers of bells dinging meant something was urgent or um, you know breaking news of one sort or other. So it's kind of like similar to like a Morris code kind of thing. It, well, no, actually, the this was just an alert. This was just so the, the bell went ding, 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 ding mm -hmm. four times. They had something really urgent, a bulletin. Okay. And so as it happened, I heard ding, 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 walked over to the uh, Associated Press printer, and there was a message saying there were reports of shots fired along the Kennedy motorcade route in Dallas this morning, which I thought, uh-oh, that down doesn't sound good. And that was followed rapidly by more details until suddenly it was obvious what was going on. Uh, I grabbed the telephone and called Jensen's restaurant. And there was a waitress named Rita up there that everybody knew. She happened to answer the phone and said, Rita, tell everybody from the journal to get their ass down to the newspaper. Because... <laughs> yeah, get your get your butt back. Yeah. <laughs> so we had uh, – and we managed to turn out pretty good coverage. The, pa the paper had would have gone to press by then. We didn't get it run out and say how to stop the presses because it wasn't quite that late, but uh, mm -hmm. they managed to hold the press time so that we could develop uh, the story pretty well. We did a bunch of interviews locally with you know the mayor and so forth, the actual kind of reaction things, plus all of the the wire stories. So I was, I guess, I'd say not proud, but impressed to, to be the fact that I was. Uh, you, you were on, on it. I was the first know. one on it. Yeah, because yeah. if uh, you know, you would have if you weren't dedicated to your job and you just heard the you know the tele. What, what do they call that? A, tele a, tel a, a teletype. A teletype. Uh, if you would have heard that go off and you're just like ah, whatever. I'll oh, no. just let it. I'll just let it go. You know. But you didn't. Yeah. You, well, that, ju you jumped right on. That's that. what you do when you're in that business. Right. Yeah. Well, but but there's there's people that are lazy about it, and there's people you know, especially with um, especially with you being uh, a, a younger in oh yeah the business young and eager that yeah time, that's right you know so it just it just goes to show what type of person you are you know dedicated to getting the the proper news or the proper information mm -hmm. out there in a quickly manner and proper you know correct manner too obviously but that's incredible. Interesting, too. Another teletype story. <laughs> My first newspaper job, which was uh, the Chicago Daily Calumet, which was a small south side paper. Uh, we ran like eight pages a day. So it was Very, out of Calumet City, I uh, No, actually out of the Calumet neighborhood, oh, the Calumet 90th neighborhood. in Baltimore, near the steel mills. Okay. And uh, we had a staff of four people, and we turned out a lot of copy. Uh, but for many years, I carried in my wallet a little slip of teletype paper that I had cut off that, and this happened in 1960, and it was bulletin, Nixon concedes. <laughs> right, the, the Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, so I just thought that was kind of a cool thing. So I carried it around for many years. It finally disintegrated. Did I? Yeah, I was going to say, because that, that paper. Yeah, it's just a kind of rough paper. Yeah, but, uh, it's nothing special. Because a lot of times it would just get thrown away after, oh, you know. That's right. Because what you would, you would get that information from the teletype, right? And then you would just type it right. on your own paper, right? Yeah. Well, actually, the teletype material was usually given directly if there was an editor would look at it, you know, and write a headline to go with it and so forth. And then it was sent to our teletype or our linotype operators in the back shop. Okay. And the type was set. Now, of course, stories that were written by the reporters were typed out and this then would go to the line of type Then they'd operators. go to line of type. Okay. But uh, also worked in television for a while. Yeah. Uh, I in, remember you mentioning that. 
in, uh, let's see, 63. Yeah, through, I was married in Milwaukee. My uh, wife, who had met at college, and then I went off to work, for, uh, and she ended up actually graduating from Marquette Journalism School in 1961. And uh, she got a job working for a television station in Milwaukee doing promotional work. And uh, after we got married, I quit my job because, uh, for one thing, I, this was the Korean War period. And I, or not a Korean War. I'm sorry, Vietnam. I no, that would have been Vietnam, no. yeah. Yeah, I had the draft breathing down my neck. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to worry about, you know, getting a job until my situation clears up here. Well, as it turned out, uh, I never did get drafted, as it turned out. But uh, I'd say you got pretty lucky. Yes. Well, as it happened uh, at that time, if you were uh, an impending parent, you were... <laughs> He would not be drafted. So you were expecting. As my old, yeah, our oldest son was uh, kept me out of the draft. Oh, thank God! <laughs> but uh, eventually, once you know, after the, shortly after we were married, uh, this we were married in May and June, July, August was of course vacation season. So the uh, news or the television station people were in the news department were going on vacation. So news director called me up one day and said, you want to come and do a fill-in and do some work, cover for the people? And I said, yeah, why not? I'll make my money. I don't care. <laughs> so you were uh, so actually you were actually reporting? I was writing news. You were writing, okay. We had a show called Wisconsin News Morning Edition, which was sort of a uh, uh, localized GMA, uh, Good Morning America kind of thing with you know, an anchor and newsman and that sort of thing. And so I would get up and get into the station at like 4.30 in the morning. Uh, riding a bus in Milwaukee in January uh, or any time in the wintertime is not fun. <laughs> but anyway, I'd go and essentially open up the newsroom, get, get the first newscasts together and that sort of thing. Our newsman was a young bachelor who was like the party. Mm -hmm. So one of my duties was to call him up every morning and keep the phone ringing until he actually uh, rolled out of bed and, and was on his way. Did you ever have to go uh, acquire him? No, he always no. turned up. Okay. Uh, he was very conscientious, and he was an incredible sight reader. Uh, I would often be standing by the studio door with the copy for the newscast in my hand. He would fly in the door over behind the lectern, drop the paper down, look up, and the red light went on in the camera, and he would start <laughs> delivering the news. <laughs> Man. Uh, he was very professional, and he ended up doing very well in his profession. His name was Bill Plant. Uh, and beginning with the Reagan, well, among other things, one of the things he covered was the uh, spec murders in Chicago, the guy who killed the nurses. And okay, so forth. That was, I was going to say that was yeah. the nurses, right? But he later went on to cover politics, and beginning with the Reagan administration, he was the CBS White House correspondent for about 12 or 15 years. That's huge. I think he went through the last of the bushes or something like that, but, but he was a terrific reporter. So and that was you know, another phase of <laughs> Yeah, there's so many. It's well, like you've done so many things, it's hard to... Um, 
I know we're we're all over the place with with uh, as far as the timeline goes. But going back to you know the very beginning of your life, south side south side of Chicago, mm-hmm. what did your parents do for a living? Where were they oh, okay. from? Were they from the Chicago area as well, or or where did your family? Obviously, you mentioned earlier about your grandfather having that Irish right. heritage. Mm-hmm. I would yeah. imagine. Clasey, is that Irish as well? No, it's Swiss. It's Swiss, okay. Mm-hmm. The original spelling was K-L-A-E-S-I. And uh, <laughs> there's, there's a story to that, too. Okay, I would love to hear that one, too. <laughs> My father, uh, at one point, when he was, oh, I guess he was over 18, I guess, at the time, but he had, they had a contentious, he and his father had a kind of contentious relationship at times. And at one point, he got really mad at his father and he went down to the courthouse and changed his name, the spelling of the name from K-L-A-E-S-I to K-L-A-S-E-Y because his favorite uncle had done that at some point. Oh, okay. So that's how we ended up. I, I still have, uh, let's see, I guess we don't have any male cousins who still have that name. One of my female cousins lives in Mantino and her family, her side of the family had always spelled it K-L-A-E-S-I. But anyway, my dad... Uh, Originally was a uh, bread truck driver for Continental Baking, or for white, uh, yeah, for Continental Baking Wonder Bread. Uh, he and his mother for a time ran a small grocery store, but then eventually he became a Chicago firefighter. Oh wow! And uh, did that for many years. By the time that he retired, he had been he was a lieutenant on the fire department and was the in charge of inspections and training for all of the. Nursing homes and hospitals on the south side of Chicago. So when did when did he enter the Chicago Fire Department? Were that forties, fifties? Oh, let's see. I'm trying to think back here. It would be. I was born in thirty nine. I I think it was after the war because he was in the Navy briefly toward the end of the war, and then they discharged everybody. And I think right after that, he took the, the exam and went into the fire department. I was going to say, I was curious to hear how the the fire department worked. How did you get your way into the fire department back then? <laughs> you took an examination, yeah. uh, just as you do today. Uh, yeah. There's a written exam and a physical exams, just like police officers do. And uh, then there is an eligibility list. And the next time that you know, the fire department needs to add some people. They call people off the eligibility list and hire them. Were there ever times where you thought your dad wasn't going to come home? It was, you sort of always had that feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. My mother, people say mother to my mother, how can you handle that with your you know, husband is sort of on the possibility of something happening all the time. She said, that's fate. You live with it. You know, you just have the faith that you're going, they're going to come home. Uh, he was only injured in the line of duty once that I know of, and, and it was when he had a chimney fall on his head. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, and it was probably because of a, a fire. Was yeah, he down it, below it was, on the street? or? Yeah, he was actually, I think he may have been on, on the roof ventilating, and they had a fairly tall brick chimney, and it went over and you know, knocked him out, gave him a minor concussion. He didn't get too seriously injured, thank goodness. <laughs> but uh, we had... Uh, Public service, in a way, runs in our family. My uh, sister is a retired Chicago police officer. Okay. And uh, she worked for the Chicago police officer for many years as a uh, as a street cop and then also in kind of the youth division. You could probably write a book on her stories, I <laughs> bet, is, if you haven't already. Ones. 
Or maybe she's written a book herself. Yeah. No, she hasn't, but she, she's a very interesting person. Yeah. And it's gone on through, it skipped a generation. Okay. Uh, my grandson is a Kanky police officer. In fact, he's an investigator for the Kanky Police Department. Is that y your grandson, you said? My grandson. Because yes. I recently learned, there's a, isn't there a Jack Clacy Jr. or second? Not or Jr. No, Jack, that's just... Kevin, that's, Jack is the police officer. Okay. And uh, no, his, his father is Kevin, who's my second oldest son. Okay. But we didn't have any, uh, any Jacks. And my oldest son is John, but was never known as Jack. Okay. Uh, whereas Jack is, his, is my grandson's given name. Okay, but he's not like the second or the. Oh, no. the no. Well, I guess he couldn't be the second because he's your grandson. Yeah, there's so. a skip in between. Yeah. My grandfather, my father, and I were all John, known as Jack, but we never did any of the one, two, three things. We all had different middle names. <laughs> okay, so your your first name is actually John. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I use that for signing, you know, checks and bills and things like that. So is Jack your middle name, or is no, just a, Jack? Is it's a that's, a, that's just the the John. I know. I guess I never understood how the John and Jack thing. Yeah, became it, a thing. I it's it's it goes back a long way. I think it's a traditional nickname for John, just like for example, uh, Bill is a nickname for William. Yeah, you know, but although not, and, as, not as obvious. Yeah, but John and Jack—they're both four letters. Yep. So, I, think, I think it came out of England somewhere. I don't okay. know why, but it seems to me that that I read somewhere once that the substitution or the use of Jack as a nickname for John. Yeah. Uh, had its being there. Right. Yeah, so anyway, I cause confusion all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's it's neat, though, that your grandson, Jack, is continuing that that public service. Family tradition. Yeah. Sort of, yes. Mm -hmm. And I always felt, in a way, in a, obviously a different way, um, media is almost like, can be like a public service, especially oh, yes. if you're, you know, if you're working for a newspaper like That's you right. have or, um, or radio, news. radio news, things like that. And um, so it, it it seems like it always kind of continued in your family in one shape or another. So, um, so yeah, you know, growing up, um, you know, on the south side in the, you said the Jackson Park yeah, actually, Area. south of Jackson Park, we were about so. 95th Street. Jackson Park is about 59th, 60th Street, uh, directly north of where we lived. Mm -hmm. uh, as kids, uh, you could ride the bus for 10 cents. And a lot of Saturdays, we'd just jump on the bus, go right down Jeffrey Street to uh, Museum of Science and Industry, okay. for example, which, of course, was a, a, a legacy of the Columbian Exposition. Yeah. And is that where your fascination with... Um, the uh, George Ferris and, and the Ferris wheel came into play? In a way. Uh, I've always been a Chicago history nut. Of course. <laughs> and, you uh, lived in Chicago. Yeah, and so. uh, particularly interested kind of in the Columbian Exposition and things that took place on the South Side. And the actual genesis of the Prince of Wheelwrights, which is the title of the Ferris wheel book, came in a conversation with my wife. We were just sitting casually, I don't think, you know, somewhere talking about something and somehow the Colombian exposition came up, and I talked, I talked about the, this really kind of neat thing, the Ferris wheel. And she said, "You know, my one of my high school friends, her parents have the plans for the Ferris wheel in their attic." I said, "Oh, let me know more about that." And so she told me, and this was over in she grew up in Rock Island, Illinois. Okay, and uh, her friends. Family was apparently distantly related to George Ferris. 
So I said, let me get in touch with them. I'm going to see if they would let me take a look at those things. Well, as it turned out, it was not the plans for the Ferris wheel, but one of the promotional photographic booklets. There's like a 24-page book with all kinds of neat pictures of the, you know, the Ferris wheel and the view from the Ferris wheel, which is, of course, 250 feet up in the air and that sort of thing. Uh, so that got me started. Okay. So where did that... When was that promotional book printed? Was it printed during the the Columbian Exposition, or was this after the fact? No, it was actually printed uh, in 1893, and in fact was actually sold by the Ferris Wheel Company as a souvenir. Okay. Uh, there were a number of things. There were a lot of uh, pictorial books done at the time of the fair and after the fair about the fair, and they've covered all the interesting things like the Ferris wheel and the uh, the different midway attractions and the Ferris, the main grounds themselves with these huge white buildings and so forth. And I know it was after the Columbian Exposition in Chicago in the late 1800s there, mm -hmm. the Ferris wheel actually toured the country or toured the world, right? Or is that is that incorrect? I, I, can't uh, I can't remember exactly. Uh, no, actually, the Ferris wheel only ran for four months in the Columbian Exhibition. It closed at the end of October 1893, and the fairgrounds were eventually were demolished. Part of them were burned down, but the rest of them were demolished. The Ferris wheel was dismantled and stored on a, a whole string of flat cars on a railroad siding south of 59th Street, they sit there for about, oh, I was like, it's two years, I think. And then the Ferris Wheel Company uh, leased some property at uh, Wrightwood Avenue and Clark Street in Chicago up on the north side. And we're going to build the Ferris Wheel and do something called Ferris Wheel Park, uh, which sounded like kind of a neat idea. And it was, but unfortunately, the neighbors especially to the east of there, which was a pretty fancy area between there and, Jack and there and uh, what park? Can't think of the name. So, so what area would that be now? Lincoln? Lincoln Park, right. Okay. Just directly east or west of Lincoln Park. Yeah. And neighbors, there are two or three streets between that space and Lincoln Park, and it was a pretty fancy neighborhood. Going the other way, the west was mostly working class people, but the people on the other side were unhappy about this. They didn't want this more or less, not in my backyard, you know, sort of thing. So there were all kinds of lawsuits and so forth. And one of the, the most effective part was they couldn't stop it from being built, but they could stop it from getting a liquor license for the restaurant and so forth. Of course. Which was, uh, the wheel was built, went into operation by the end of 1895, uh, only for a couple weeks because winter came in. But then from there until 19, 1903, uh, it sort of limped along. It was in bankruptcy a good part of the time because people, most of the people who wanted to ride it had, had already ridden on it. Uh, and During the fair? During or? the fair, okay. mostly, as far as local people. In the fair, they had a huge—they carried more than a million people in the four months. But wow. most of those were, were out-of-town visitors. Right. Anyway, the the wheel kind of limped along. They had vaudeville, they added vaudeville attractions and various other things just to keep it going. And it was finally in bankruptcy. And in eighteen and nineteen oh three, it was auctioned off for scrap. But it wasn't scrapped. 
Okay. The company that won the uh, won the auction was the Chicago Housewrecking Company, which was a huge operation that did the salvaging of the of things like the Columbian Exposition, all the the wire and the you know the fixtures and that sort of thing. They bought it and they decided we could put this together, take it down and put it together again in St. Louis in 1904 because there's a World's Fair down there in 1904. So they did. They dismantled it, put it back on the railroad train and took it down to And that's St. where Lewis. George Ferris was from, right? Wasn't he from Missouri? No, he was from he was born in Galesburg, Illinois. Oh, for some reason I thought he was from the St. Louis area. No, he was born in Galesburg and grew up in uh, Nevada near Reno. And then... Uh, Went to school at the uh, hmm, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York, which at that time was the best engineering school in the country. And he was not just a a fly-by-night guy who thought of a Ferris wheel. He was a very prominent engineer. He owned a company that did the testing of iron and steel for all of the major, many of the major projects in the company. Like, the, like bridges and Bridge, things bridges like that? Bridges and the elevated structures and the uh, various buildings in Chicago and New York and all over the place. So he's a very prominent engineer. He was only in his 30s at the time that he designed the wheel. Okay, so this was just uh, un, like the next leap for him, really, he already had had a a, a a good name. All right, and a good career. This is actually kind yeah. of a little bit of a sideline for him in oh, a way. Okay. Uh, and actually, he lost money on the wheel. Yeah, the the wheel made money, and the the stockholders, the corporation, made money on it at, from the fair. Unfortunately, Ferris had set up a company to do the actual construction of the of the wheel uh, in Chicago. In Chicago. And the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, the price, they had a fixed price contract to build the wheel and, and it went away over. And so he ended up with a, a big pile of debt. <laughs> and he, that carried through the rest of his life. And there was a lot of things going on. As it happened, he died at the age of 37 of typhoid fever. In, uh, that would have been the, what the teens or the twenties. Uh, same trying to think how maybe, oh well, maybe yeah. earlier. No, than 90, that. Uh, I believe eighteen ninety seven. I think it was. I'd have to okay. look it up and see. I'm a little vague on the on the year, but it was not long. Not long after it was after the uh, the fair, the fair, and after the after the Ferris wheel company thing, but before the uh, Columbian or before the nineteen oh four exposition in in St Louis. Uh, Anyway, in St. Louis, it was, again, fairly successful. Uh, Chicago House Wrecking Company set it up and called it the Observation Wheel at that point. Mm. Uh, and it was – they had a lot of interesting stunts to draw people into it. There were gymnasts that did uh, demonstrations on top of the, some of the cars as it was going around. Oh, my gosh. Uh, kind of like a circus almost, Oh, yeah. Right? There, yeah. There were a couple of uh, – performers from a uh, Wild West show that was playing as part of the 1904 affair that got married on the Ferris wheel in on their horses wow. <laughs> in one of the cars. Oh, that's so Th cool. These cars were not what you think of in terms of Ferris wheel, not, you know, something with... Well, I know in, in this picture, they're, they're huge. 
They were about the just size looking... of a trolley car or a, you know, or a big bus. And were they like that? I know they were like that for the Chicago uh, Columbian Exposition, but were they like that uh, for, in the 1900 fair oh, or yeah. 1904? This is, this is exactly the same wheel. It, it, just it was. Just down and put up again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they would hold 40 people on in chairs and they could t- add another 20 standees in in the same car. Yeah, that's so it was, a lot. It was huge. <laughs> I always think of them in terms of being about the size of a uh, you know, a trolley car. Yeah. Yeah. But I would, uh, let's say it looks pretty accurate looking at the the front cover of the uh the Prince of Wheelwrights book. Yes. So, um so where can people buy this? I know uh you had mentioned Amazon before. It's it's on Amazon, yes, and in fact, actually, it's published on the Amazon uh, platform. So the soft cover book is available through Amazon, and it's also in a Kindle ebook version. Okay. Uh, locally, uh, it's stocked at the Kankakee County Museum's bookstore. That's where everyone should go. Forget about That's Amazon. Right. <laughs> go to the go to the go, museum go to the and get it. and help support the museum. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and the Ferris wheel itself had a a sad end, actually. Uh, it was dynamited. <laughs> it was dynamite. Was that another stunt? I uh, suppose, no. It or? was. It was the cheapest way to bring it down and cut it up for scrap. <laughs> so did the dynamite happen in St. Louis or in where? St. Louis. Did... Yeah, it was in Forest Park in St. Louis. Uh, after the fair, the Chicago House Wrecking Company was the uh, also won the contract to. Uh, salvage all the material from the pair. So they were busy for a year or so taking down all these buildings and just left the Ferris wheel standing without the cars and so forth. But then they decided it was time to take it down and they they could have dismantled it as they had before to you know use it again. But they decided it was had kind of run its course. So they packed dynamite around the uh, supports on one side of the the wheel and set it off and the whole thing just crumpled down into a big mess. <laughs> Oh and it was gosh. cut up for scraps. I suppose they did that. You said something about uh, cost too. Maybe labor was cheaper because you weren't paying a bunch of men to yeah, very un- skilled people to do it. Yeah, yeah you weren't paying them right. to undo bolts and right. things like right. rivets and right. all that. Because I imagine, I can only imagine how much time that would take to undo every little piece that's fastened Oh, yeah. They were together. all fastened with bolts and Ex- so forth so they could take them apart. You know, yeah. Our pin connections of one kind or another. Yeah. And this is before the days of a traveling carnival, so, oh, yeah. you know. Well, the traveling carnivals use a, a small version of the Ferris wheel that was uh, developed by a, an Illinois man. Uh, the Eli Bridge Company in Jacksonville, Illinois, built only one bridge in its life. Uh, a man named William Sullivan, no relation to my grandfather. Okay, I was going to say, is but there a relation? William Sullivan was a mechanic in uh, Roodhouse, Illinois, which is right near um, Jacksonville. And he went to the fair and just, you know, ate this up. He, he, I think he wrote it a couple times and he was able to talk the engineers into letting him look at all the uh, mechanisms and so forth. And he said, I think I can build one of these smaller size that's portable. There were some smaller wheels around. Uh, they were mostly made of wood and they brought 40 feet high, but they were not very portable. They were not constructed to be taken apart and put together again readily. Okay. So William Sullivan uh, developed a, I think it was about 60 foot diameter wheel and his crew could, you know, take it apart and put it back together again fairly rapidly, a couple hours, I think. Uh, and he began 
traveling around Illinois with and Indiana with this portable Ferris wheel. And after a while, other people say, hey, can you make one of these for us? And so it became the, uh, it became a manufacturer of Ferris wheels. The Eli Bridge Company name was put on it because some of his backers said, this is kind of a fad probably. You better make chance to, to do bridges or something else that'll make you know, continue to make money when this fad passes away. Well, it never did. They did build one little nine-foot bridge across a, a, a drainage ditch or something in that area, but the rest of the time they had built Ferris wheels. <laughs> That's funny. And interestingly enough, they managed to track down the original wheel, which had been sold eventually to somebody at some point, and that now stands out in front of their factory in in Jacksonville. That's, That's an so interesting cool. story. That is very fascinating. Did mm. did he did Sullivan have to purchase any kind of I don't know if patents or copyrights existed back then. Did he have to like purchase that from someone before he could start like mass producing? No. Uh copyrights and patents did exist at that time. In fact, they go all the way back to the beginning of the country. That's what I thought. But George Ferris never applied for any patents. Why? I can't believe he, that. He said so. Uh, he he said after, he said it's mostly an application of general principles. And he said, we thought of applying for patents on some of the features of it, but you really decided that it was nothing really that new. It just was a combination of existing materials. The best material on George Ferris was one of my great discoveries. <laughs> I, in researching the book, I, I literally read on microfilm every day's edition of the Chicago Tribune from 1891 until about uh, 1902 or 1903. And one day I happened to notice, in that time they used to run the court calendars. Uh, you know, what, what, were, what cases were coming before judges in the various courts okay. uh, on the front page. And I, my, I happened to catch a note saying, uh, let's see, Chicago Observation Wheel Company, uh, I think, uh, versus Ferris Wheel Company, patent infringement. Thought, oh, patent infringement suit. Hmm, okay. So I was able to find that in the, there's a records depository in Chicago, federal records depository out near um, Midway Airport. And I was able to actually go in and look at the court record on the fat and infringement suit, which is 400 pages of typed material in this big box. So I imagine you didn't read that whole thing. Oh, I did. Oh, you did? And All I, 400 and I, and, pages? And I had them copy a number of the pages, too, that I needed for... But So oh, yes. what did you find in that 400 pages? I, I found in that 400 pages probably 120 pages of actual interviews with George Ferris about how he built the wheel, how the idea came about, what and his reaction to various things, and a lot of other material related. Because this was not a courtroom trial, but it was depositions and then cross-examination by the different attorneys. For, and as it happened, the uh, Ferris Wheel Company, uh, the suit was dismissed as frivolous, and the other company was... Uh, <coughs> um, Given uh, was told to pay the cost twenty six dollars or whatever it was for <laughs> to, to Ferris. No, to, to pay, pay the cost to, to the court. Oh, to for, pay the cost to the court. The, yes. Okay. So anyway, that that was interesting. That's... The archivist at the Chicago Records Center told me that 
as far as he could tell from the records, I was the first person to open that box since it had been stored away in the 1890s. That's unbelievable. I would have, you would have thought someone would have, someone else would have opened it yeah, there since was then. A professor out in, now retired out in Maryland, uh, who wrote a, a very good book. It was a pictorial history of Ferris wheels in general. Okay. And he and I corresponded on and off for many years. We'd send material back and forth to each other. And it was interesting. Uh, he, I sent him some copies of some of the material that I had on the first thing. And he said he was just delighted because he had never heard of that happening. Yeah. Uh, well, it's probably uh, maybe <laughs> maybe it was never opened because they found out it was 400 pages long. <laughs> and since you're a, a very dedicated person and, and maybe others that came across it were like, I think I'll pass. <laughs> no, that's, the kind, that's the kind of things that re historical researchers go berserk about. Though. I mean, it's we true. love stuff like that. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Um, and uh, so no wonder why. I mean, that's just one piece of the many different puzzles and pieces of research that you came across to oh, yeah. compile this book. Yeah, I have so. a, a file cabinet, <laughs> one of those horizontal drawer file cabinets. One entire drawer of that is research materials, mostly photocopies and notes and so forth. Mm -hmm. Wow. But, so yeah, everyone uh, needs to get a co uh, buy a copy of the, the Prince of Wheelwrights. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jack was kind enough to leave a copy here with me, so I, I can't wait to read, read that. in your spare time. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm definitely gonna dive into that. I don't think you have any spare time. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I've I've been trying to get into that habit though of reading every night before I go to bed. You know, I always read to my son, of course, right. um, but I'm trying to actually read to myself though too um, when I can. So there there's some nights I'm I'm able to get in that routine, and some nights I'm not, but. But I'm getting slowly getting better at it. So. Congratulations! Yeah. <laughs> I read at least two hours every night. Yeah, see, and that's that's what I I need to make it at least like thirty minutes. Yeah. If I can, right. you know, make that happen every day, then I'll be. I think I'll be good. I have the advantage, of course, being retired of being able to sit up late and get up late in the morning if I need to. So <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That must be nice. Um, but. I want to get back to so what brought you to Kankakee County was was it the Daily Journal or yeah. did you have family here or any other connections here or was it really that you just saw a job listing for the journal how did that okay I was, uh, it was kind of a intermittent sort of thing I was working for the television station in Milwaukee and. Okay. Really got tired of writing little short paragraph news stories. I said, I've got to get back to newspapers again. Mm -hmm. Well, somehow I got took a job in Elgin, Illinois, uh, running a, or, uh, as the sole reporter slash editor for a group of weekly newspapers up around Carpentersville and that area. After <clears throat> about a week and a half, I thought, this is a really bad fit. I did not like working for the guy that owned that he was a a uh, self-made man who had botched the job. <laughs> mm -hmm. It just was really difficult to work for. So I started looking for, and at that time there was a magazine called Editor and Publisher, which was the, uh, was all about newspapers, of course, uh, you know, articles on various things, but also it had a terrific uh, job listing section. Like classifieds. Yeah, classifieds. Yeah. And so I, I saw an advertisement for the Kankakee Daily Journal 
And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. It seems to fit my background and so forth. And uh, I happened to talk to an uncle of mine who lived in Joliet, who was a salesman for uh, Aero Shirt Company. And we were talking, and I knew he knew a lot about the Chicago, the area. And so, what do you know about Kent Keys? He's always oh, he great town. He said, I go down there to, you know, sell shirts to plant Kircher Company and so forth and Aldenus. And he said, I've always thought it was really a pleasant town. You ought to look it up look it up. So I went down and was interviewed by, by Lennon and Burl Small, the two brothers who were at that time owned the operation. And uh, they offered me $125 a week to start, which sounded good to me because uh, my first newspaper job, I made $50 a week. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a pretty big improvement. And there. I was told at the time that that was the highest weekly offer they had ever made for a, a reporter just starting for them. Wow, <laughs> which, was, which nice it was very flattering. Yeah, and it was also very nice because I had uh, I think two kids. That, no, I had only one kid at that when, time. Yeah, because this was nineteen sixty three. Sixty three, right? That so you came. Yeah, we came here. And, and I mean, if you think about it, right, this is, is that considered like the heyday for newspapers or what's considered, yeah. is that during that era? Oh, that's definitely part of the, the high highlight periods of newspapers. From after the war, I think is probably it. I mean, I, I'm constantly reading old newspapers at, and I'm amazed at the number of ads and the number of pages of, you know, you had a Sunday newspaper that was like 90 pages sometimes, wow. for example. Yeah, that's uh, 96 huge. pages. And even the, the skinniest edition was probably 30 pages. So. Yeah, and that's still, that's quite a bit. Yeah, right now you won't find the, the, the biggest one being 32 pages. No. Except maybe an occasional Sunday. But yeah. uh, it was, it, the, we had a, a large newsroom. We had, I think, probably with, you know, secretarial help and photographers and so forth. I think we had like 50-some people in the newsroom there. And uh, it was a great place to come to work because it, they took journalism seriously, and they still do. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're down to about seven or eight people in the newsroom right now, and they're mm -hmm. they're struggling, but I think they're doing a good job. Yeah. And also, I mean, they don't have the press room anymore either. No, no that's right. And that's just so they can keep operating. You that's know, right. it's it's cheaper to have uh, someone else print it for you that's right. than actually have your, you know— so yeah, the economy is scaled. It's because somebody that's printing, you know, several newspapers, a company that's doing that can do it cheaper than running your own operation. Yeah, and that's just the that's just the fact of the matter. You that's know, right. whether you agree with it or not, like that's just the that's fact right. of the you know, it's just oh, the yeah. fact. Um, so, and and it sounds like you were kind of uh, on and off with the journal over the years, right? Because you said you mm -hmm. uh, you ended up working for that. Um, Imperial International Learning. Yeah, you ended up working for them yeah. full time. Right. Oh yes. And, and then when the did journal. you when did you end up going back to the journal then? Well, actually, I've never gone back to the journal as a regular employee. So uh, you've just I've been, been freelance? writing this column as a freelance uh, on a you know a freelance basis since 2016. Okay. Now my wife was the librarian at the journal for 24 years. Uh, she went went to work there when our we had two kids in college, and she said she had to put her her uh, degree to work and make some money. <laughs> so she stayed there for almost a quarter century. But um, no, my relationship with the journal has always been a good one. You know, uh, occasionally, even in between, I would write an occasional story for them if they needed some help or something. But uh, I've enjoyed doing the, the column because it's something that 
I love doing, <laughs> and people find it interesting. In fact, I don't think of myself so much a, as a historian. I think of myself more as a storyteller. I like to tell stories that catch people's attention and, and read them. And usually one of the you know things, a couple of things that I do with columns that I think help that always begins with what I call a hook. There's always something kind of interesting that grabs your attention. Uh, I can't remember anything offhand now, but there's usually some kind of a might tie to a, a story, or, I mean, a, to a song title or a line from a poem or something like that, and then you get into it. And there also are things that I call nuggets, which are little interesting, odd pieces of information that you wouldn't normally expect to find in a story. So try to keep people's interest in there. And they're, they're relatively short. They most I run generally about 800, page, 800 words for each one, and we're fortunate because the museum has such an incredible photographic collection that I can almost always illustrate them with anywhere from one to five or six uh, photographs. Usually they only use one or two of these space sort of things, but the other day, the, the latest edition of um, Lifestyles magazine, the periodic magazine that the journal runs, Yeah, uh, I always write one article for them. And the current edition, the December edition, uh, I looked back at Christmas shopping 100 years ago in Kankakee. Oh, cool. Which I was shocked to re realize that that was 1921. It wasn't 1870 or something. Right? That was 100 years ago. You're thinking like, wait a minute. <laughs> I know. I keep thinking back at like, so the, the 1920s were 100 years, 100 years ago, ago already. Which is how, amazing. Yeah. How in the hell is that possible? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know. But anyway, and there they had a little more room available. I think they used seven or eight pictures that all the pictures that I had sent them down, old downtown shots with the uh, brick streets and diagonal parking, yeah. and so forth, and stores that are long gone, but you could read the names on the front of them and so forth. It's really fun to, to dig in. The, we have, at I believe, our collection of the museum currently. We have almost 15,000 photographs that are cataloged and digitized in our system so we can pull them up. There are probably at least that many. <laughs> I was going to say, there's probably <laughs> that many that aren't uh, right, that cataloged are properly yet. Propos oh, yeah. 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 We've been cataloging for about 10 years now. Okay. Uh, on the photo. Well, actually, they had the photo collection goes back much further than that, but we have, we've been digitizing them for, and cataloging for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, t it takes a long, <coughs> it takes a long time to properly research all that and, oh, yeah. and cat, you know, because you want to. If you're going to catalog it and digitize it, you don't want to have to go back and do it. That's so you right. got to make sure that whatever you're putting in that exactly. system that it's correct. That's right. Yeah, you know, so. yeah, if you, have a, you know, a picture of the hotel Kankakee. You want to note that it was on the. Uh, Northeast corner of uh, of Merchant and Schuyler Avenue was built in 1927, I think it was. I don't remember offhand, but so those kinds of information so that when somebody is going back to do the research, the information is there and it's correct. Yes, yeah, and for whatever it may be that they're writing about or researching about or any of that. So, you know, um, something I just realized I never we never mentioned the first book that I did. I mean, you've done so many books. What was the first book? It was called Of the People. It was in 1968, and I was a co-author with uh, Mary Jean Hood, who was another reporter at the Journal. And it was that is the basic history of Kankakee County. It's the first really comprehensive one that was written. Uh, we were commissioned to do it by the county board. 
And uh, let's see, uh, 1968 was, or 69, was the sesquicentennial uh, yeah, of Illinois, I believe, the 150th anniversary. And so, the, you know, as they did with the bicentennial, there were a lot of things commissioned to recognize it. So the county board said, we haven't got a really comprehensive history of the county. Let's do it this way. So they hired us to do that in our spare time. And uh, we uh, turned out it's about four or five hundred page book. So it's pretty good sized. And uh, a lot of writing or <laughs> a lot of writing in the evening. Yeah, I bet because you're working your full time oh, yeah. job at that time. Yeah, I mean, your kids are still young. It's 1968. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> My wife, bless her, took at one point getting down toward the end of the project when things are getting tight on a deadline. She, we had three kids at the time. And she packed them up and went for a week to her visit her mother over in Rock Island with the kids <laughs> so that I could just work, work. away and work. And yeah. So I went into this uh, you know, crisis mode where I would write as long as my eyes could continue working. And then I'd quit and go to sleep for a while. <laughs> and then when I woke up, I'd go back to it again. And in between, I'd be... <laughs> eating while while still it's typing right, yeah, and this the, sort of thing. Yeah, like but, just like you see in the movies. That's right. <laughs> so, in fact, I just resurrected a a picture the other day that I ran across that was taken in my first newspaper job uh, with the Chicago Daily Calumet in 1960, and. I was sitting at a desk with a, my manual typewriter in front of me with a cigarette hanging out of the corner <laughs> of my mouth. I was, I was going to say, were you a smoker? Cause yeah. If you added the cigarette into the picture, that would just complete the, the stereotype <laughs> of was. a writer. Yeah, and the place you know. was, uh, you know, th there were file cabinets in the background and the, the police uh, loudspeaker next to my desk and that sort of thing and, and a really antique looking television set over in the corner oh cool yeah, it's a neat picture I would love to see you'll have to send that to me I will I would love to we might uh, I might end up using that for this podcast that would be <laughs> that'd be a great great picture so in all of your years of of research from you know from the 1960s to now of Kankakee County what it, it, between the books you've written or the columns you've written in the Daily Journal, what are some of your favorite stories or some of your just favorite uh, pieces of information that you've come across in, in all the, this time? I mean, I know that's, that's a many years, but there has to be something that sticks out in your mind all the time when you think, wow, like I never would have thought I would find this. I try to find things, in fact, that other people have not written about in the past, right? Because there have been... Oh, going back to almost 1900, there have been history columns in the journal or its predecessors, uh, Burt Burroughs originally, Harold Simmons, Dick Johnson. Uh, but that, that entire spectrum, somebody has been writing history columns. And, you know, predictably, everybody writes about the courthouse or about uh, maternity church or about Noel Levasseur. And I write about them too, but I try to find kind of the unusual things. Uh, for example, um, the day that the first Walgreens store in Kankakee opened, and it was a Christmas period, I think in the 1930s, if I can't remember, I don't remember the date exactly. The One of the store officials was murdered in a holdup in the store. <laughs> And it got to be quite an—they ended up—it was a search all over the, the state, and they finally ended up 
capturing the, the robbery gang and so forth, but that was unusual. You know? And then there was a man named Anderson who uh, was from Shabantz who made his living as a balloonist. Now, this is back in the 1890s. He would go kind of barnstorming around the, the state, going to fairs and so forth. Yeah. And he would uh, but go up in his balloon, hot air balloon, and then parachute back down to the earth again. Okay. When you mm -hmm. said balloonist, I wasn't sure if you meant like a hot air balloon or like um, one of those people that makes, makes balloon animals. Like people in Mason's novelties. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure which one you meant. So, yeah. so this guy was a hot air balloonist. Mm -hmm. And why did, did he say why he robbed Oh no! And, this was totally related, unrelated to the robberies. I'm sorry. I jumped oh, one project. Oh, another. okay. So, so, so that was unusual. And then you're talking about this guy from Shabance was a uh, he was a a, a balloonist, a balloonist, a hot, right? Hot air balloonist. Yeah, and he also he and his wife ran a, a small hotel in in Shabance, I think. But he made his he made his mark as a a balloon ascensionist. Okay, yeah. I see. Yeah, that's something cool. I never oh, would have yeah. guessed either. And let's see the story of the the first woman attorney in Kankakee, who was a graduate of the Kankakee Business College. Also, the uh, there's a the Kankakee had let's see originally it was Brown's Business College, and then uh, Mary Gallagher, who worked for for Brown's and one of their opera. They were kind of a chain. Came here as the manager of the Kankakee, went over in the arcade building, and eventually she bought the operation. Uh, and a lot of the Browns, uh, well, Browns and Gallagher's, they turned out a lot of court reporters, secretaries, accountants, and this sort of stereotypical thing. Stereotypical right. jobs for women right. at that time. Yeah, women and, and men to some extent. Okay. But anyway, then uh, Mary Gallagher's uh, Operation reached the point where she needed more space, and she thought she wanted to have her own building. So, she built uh, a two-story building on uh, Indiana Avenue, midway down the hill from Kank, between Court Street and and Merchant. It's okay. still there, in fact. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, as the Gallagher School of Business, and she, the upper floor was the school, and the lower floor she rented out to a car dealer, I believe it was for at one point anyway. And, huh. But. Many, many, many people in Kankakee graduated from Gallagher, including, uh, I believe, uh, Governor Samuel Shapiro did that before he went into the law field. Really? Uh, I and, never see. I didn't know that existed. Uh -huh. That that col or, uh, col yeah. Gallagher Gallagher College of Business. College yeah, it was, of Business. It was, actually, it was up to the, I think the nineteen forties, and then, I think they went out of business. But Romy Hamas, who was a big car dealer and entrepreneur in Kankakee, uh, opened his own college of business, Marycrest College, built a building over, in fact, it still exists over on St. Joseph Avenue, where I think the one of the government agencies, housing authority or somebody, is there, that building now. But So there's been, through the years, many... Uh, is that Hamas related to the Hamases of, like, People's Bank? Yes, in okay. fact... Uh, Jerry, oh no, not Jerry, Jeff is uh, Romy's grandson. Oh, okay. And his son Jerry lives in South Bend where they had a lot of operations and so forth as Jeff's father. Okay. Oh, yeah. he, he was another interesting person to write about, uh, Romy Hammes. Is, I bet. I know that the Hammes, they, they've done a lot of different things in, in the right. county. Oh, yeah. In the area, and it sounds like beyond. And around the world. Yeah. Uh, they've supported uh, missions in, the, in Southeast Asia. They've built 
hotels and subdivisions in Las Vegas and just very interesting. That is fascinating. And uh, well, let's see, what are some of the other odds and ends? Uh, there's so many. There's, there's so many. So yeah. many. Yeah, yeah, I've. Yeah, I think I'm somewhere over 200 columns so far. So it's a little hard to keep track sometimes. Yeah. Did I write about this before? Right. right. You're yeah, like, oh, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. But talking, you know, like even just going back to the arcade building. Yes. Is that the only building that's left that uh, Emery Cobb constructed? Are all the other buildings that he erected demolished? Is that the only one? Mm, and the arcade yes. building, of course is the clock tower center right. today mm-hmm. not yeah. to confuse you know because some people know it yes. as clock tower right <laughs> uh cob yeah cob was the developer of of the original building but that's not the original building <laughs> but i always thought the the one that stood today mm-hmm. was the original building it was just modified yeah, i thought that for quite a long time until i finally ran across the actual what actually happened the building itself originally was built in the 1870s or 80s. I can't remember exactly off right now, but and it ran. It was on the corner of Mer- Merchant and Schuyler on the northwest corner. The front section was the arcade building with shops and you know bank and offices and so forth. And the back half of the building was the arcade opera house. Right, <clears throat> right. Uh, which uh, lasted for Quadell, but that after Cobb died. His sons owned the property, uh, and in 1911, 1912, they tore down the theater, the uh, the uh, opera house section of the building, and built what's there currently right now, which are two, what, five-story, I think, uh, connected office buildings, okay. and they're connected to the front of the ar- arcade. But in the 1920s, uh, a local... Uh, Entrepreneur, real estate, and developer named Harry Topping uh, bought the bought the building, and he decided to tear down the original arcade because it was only like two stories high and was kind of outdated, and built the current building. Okay. Well, keeping the name the arcade building. So. Okay. I didn't realize that. I for this whole time I thought it was the same building that it was just modified. Just yeah, I had thought that for quite a while until I ran across the story on Harry Topping. You know, demolishing and rebuilding it. Okay. Uh, Which makes sense because if you look at the original picture, yeah, and you look at the picture now, I mean, you see the similarity. You see the similarity. You can see the relation, but obviously, the original building is very gothic. Oh yes, looking very rough stone. Yeah, Yeah. and obviously, the building today is much more square. You know, the original feature that it kept, of course, was the arcade through the center of the building and opening into shops. Yeah, it did keep that. Yeah. Okay. And another interesting building that again is no longer with us. I just finished writing about it. It's going to be a story that'll probably run in the end of the month. Uh, was the uh, Fnules European Hotel, which was on East Avenue. Uh, it's now a parking lot, of course, but it was uh, halfway up the block between Station Street and Merchant, and obviously on the east side because the west side was the, the railroad. That was in the heyday of in the 1880s when East Avenue was the main street of Kankakee. It was the main business street of Kankakee. Uh, very fancy hotel, uh, three stories tall. It was built by James Lilly, who was the contractor that built the state hospital. Okay. The the Kankakee State Hospital? Yes. Okay. And uh, he had hired an architectural firm in Chicago 
the designer, and I've forgotten the name, I think it was Hewitt and somebody other, uh, pretty well known. They had, they had designed a very large building on North State Parkway that was the home for the Archbishop of Chicago's Catholic Diocese. And that building is still in existence, although the cardinal currently doesn't live there. He said he, this is just too much building, but that building is still existing. But anyway, they were hired to uh, design this hotel for, and it was became the most ornate and fancy hotel in Kanki at the time. Uh, first floor was rough stone with big plate glass windows, and there was a hundred seat uh, dining room and so forth in the hotel. And the upper two floors were guest rooms. Uh, and a man named Louis Finul, who was uh, native of Kanki, he was born in, in St. Anne. He and his wife were the hotel operators. They didn't own the building, but they leased it and, and ran the operation from, let's see, 1886 until I think about 1893. Uh, in 1891, they expanded the hotel by <laughs> cutting through the walls on either side. There were two story commercial buildings on either side, and they leased the t top floors of those two buildings and added 15 more guest rooms. Oh, wow. Do you think they did that because of the Columbian Exposition? Somewhat, although— uh, Because I know there there was talk of how there, wa there, there wasn't enough, uh, like, hotels and things like that in Chicago and in the surrounding areas where there's there was always talk that a lot of them would stay— southward, like maybe Kankakee, and then go up to the... They could have uh, on the railroad at that time because there were frequent trains, but I think the majority of the uh, you know Columbian Exhibition overflow was probably into just the south suburbs, not coming mm -hmm. down as far because of the hour-long trip to Chicago. Right. Uh, but East Avenue was very busy at that time, the commercial travelers, and of course, this was half a block from the station. Yeah. At that time, the station was on Station Street. <laughs> That's right. 1898. But uh, there was also another hotel right at the corner of uh, Station and East Avenue called the Commercial Hotel. That was like a three-story building. But anyway, Fanul's European Hotel was very well-finished, you know, just a classy hotel. And it remained that way for a number of years. But then gradually into the 1900s, the, the center of the city's commercial life shifted to court and basically to Schuyler. And so East Avenue became kind of a backwater and it deteriorated. By the 60s, when I came to town, it was, you know, taverns, empty buildings, and flop houses, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, September 20, or excuse me, February 24th, 1964, uh, the hotel caught fire. <laughs> By that time, it was called the Alamo Hotel. And it was essentially, you know, single room occupancy, transients, that sort of thing, and uh, burned down, leaving only the walls. Uh, nobody was—at first they were afraid that some people had been killed in it, but they later tracked down that nobody had even been injured. But it was a very serious fire. So that was pretty much the end of the building. It was pretty much the end of the building, and it also, I think, was the catalyst that changed the face of Kankakee. A company, or an organization called Kanki Development Corporation, uh, was formed by local business people. Hired in a fellow from California who was a consultant, and they decided that 
the best way to kind of revive downtown Kanki was to tear down all these buildings from between Court and Station Street and turn the space into parking lots to bolster the buildings on Schuyler. Well, they tore down the buildings, and I guess it helped a little bit, but eventually you know, things being as they were, they didn't really hold off the assault of the shopping centers that much. Yeah. They thought it would help, That's right. it sounds like, but... So okay. sometimes I like doing what I call a biography of a building, like the yeah, the, that, that's fascinating. Uh, the building that's now I think it's now Valspar out right across from Mount Grove Cemetery. Yeah, that basic building there goes back to the eighteen seventies or eighties, I believe, and it's held all kinds of things, including a piano factory. Yep, I thought I was going to say that's yeah. probably the most famous uh, yeah. thing that was there, right? And uh, and a company, Sheldon Novelty, which made uh, art products like easels and that sort of thing. And they eventually, uh, it became uh, a chemical manufacturer or a coatings manufacturer and a paint factory and so forth. Okay. Yeah, that was one that I really enjoyed dig digging into because there were so many different things that happened around So that many area. different businesses yeah. and, yeah. Man, I, I know we could go on for five hours <laughs> easily. <laughs> yes, just on just on those uh, Kankakee stories alone, not all the other information that's inside <laughs> inside your brain. My, my wife calls that my mental Rolodex. <laughs> yeah, yep, it's it's your mental Rolodex for sure. Uh, Jack Clacy, it, it's been such a pleasure. Um, thank you so much uh, for you know everything uh, coming on talking about. <clears throat> more about your life um and i'm sure you'll be coming back for you know episodes to come with the kankakee county museum but i thought it would be uh fascinating to hear just more about you and more background on on you and where you come from so you're a uh, you're a kankakee county treasure for sure so <laughs> i think i'd rather be the kankakee county treasurer and have some money and have some money well maybe we can arrange that um speaking uh, nick of money Africano though might be very unhappy with that <laughs> yeah nick might not like that but uh you can uh you can help uh you know uh, Jack's wallet by buying uh, the Prince of Wheelwright's book uh, about George Ferris and the Great Wheel, or you've obviously got plenty of other books as well. And I know a lot of them are for sale at the Kankakee County Museum gift shop. Yes, there are a lot of uh, relatively small books and booklets on different aspects of Kankakee County history. Oh, and by the way, I make no profit on that book at the museum. At oh, really? The museum. Okay. You just I, go. Oh, they, that's, they get they get them at cost for me. So. Th that's very uh, that's very kind. Um, so that's, that's good to know. Um, yeah. Anything else before we close out, Jack? Uh, I don't think so, except to say okay. thank you for putting up with me. I'm oh, sure I've run no... on far longer than oh, anybody come on. expected. But no, uh... <laughs> no, no. Like I said, we, this could go on forever. We could, there's so many different subjects. I just, I love learning all these new things from you. So thank you for, for what you do for, uh, for the history and, and the storytelling. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. And I'd be happy to come back again. Okay. Yeah. We might, <laughs> we might have to do a couple rounds just on Jack, you know, <laughs> or at least on the history. There's so many nice oh, yeah. things well, to talk about there. Like I said, well, you know, you'll be back for the, the museum, you know, 
So, all right. Well, that concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me. And uh, if you could take the time to write a uh, positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, I would truly appreciate that. You can also sign up for our mailing list at kankakeepodcast.com. Follow us on social media at Kankakee Podcast. And uh, our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. Until next time. People tend to